There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police the arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cop of murder... Today's story has everything a person could ask for in an entertaining true crime tale. Described as the O.J. Simpson trial of the 19th century, a murder that occurred on November 23, 1849, told the story of a rich, well-known victim, a well-liked suspect, an unlikely hero, and a gruesome death that, when it was all boiled down, had money and debt at the core of its cause. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. George Parkman was born on February 19, 1790, into one of the richest families living in Boston at the time. A well-known member of the community, George was often seen on his daily walks to pick up rent at his properties, far too thrifty to spend the money on a horse. He was a slender man, always donning a top hat, and according to the research, he was worth over $10 million in today's money. Enter John Webster, the second player in today's story who borrowed $400 from George Parkman in 1842. John White Webster, born May 20th, 1793, was a lecturer at the new Harvard Medical College and was described as, quote, pleasant in the lecture room, rather nervous and excitable. While he didn't quite have the reputation that George Parkman did, John was known as a bit of an eccentric. Nicknamed Skyrocket Jack for his intense interest in having fireworks at the inauguration of his former classmate as he became the university's president, he loved a good fire-centered lecture and enjoyed adding a little bit of drama to his lessons. Unfortunately, despite having a prestigious job at the university, the financial problems pushed his family out of the mansion that he built in Cambridge, forced them to lease a smaller but still respectable home in 1849, became indebted to a number of friends, and was living with a lecturer's paycheck that could barely cover his expenses. Which is why he borrowed that money from the much more frugal George Parkman. In 1847, about five or so years after this initial loan, John gave George a note for $2,432, the equivalent of about $50,000 in today's money, to represent the unpaid balance of the first loan and request another one. He was able to do this by mortgaging some personal property as collateral. One of these items was a cabinet of minerals. Despite this influx of money, John found himself in need yet again the following year and borrowed an additional 1200 from a friend named Robert Shaw and gave that same mineral cabinet as collateral that he had promised to George Parkman. When he found out, George was furious. On November 22nd, 1849, just a week before Thanksgiving, George Parkman went to Cambridge to look for John Webster and, before finding him, went over to the Harvard cashier and demanded he hand over the money earned from John's lecture tickets to try and repay his debt. The next day, while out on a walk collecting the rent as he was known to do, George walked over to John's home and suggested that they meet at the school that afternoon to discuss their loan issue. They were due to meet at 1.30 p.m., and at 1.45 p.m., witnesses saw George enter the college on North Grove Street, wearing his signature top hat and looking like a man on a mission. This was the last time anyone saw George Parkman ever again. Now enter the third player in this story, Ephraim Littlefield. 
Ephraim was a man from humble beginnings and had been working as a janitor at the Harvard Medical College since it was built in 1846, working at the previous campus since 1842. Ephraim, who lived in the basement of the school with his wife Caroline, was extremely familiar with the lecturers on campus, and they with him. He was known to observe the dissections of cadavers and, to supplement his income, helped to obtain bodies for study purposes for about $25 apiece. And part of his job at the school, in addition to cleaning up after the doctors, was to start their fires, set up their specimens, and run general errands whenever they needed it. Which is why he saw John Webster with a large bundle of something unknown when the man called to him asking him to get a fire going the day after George Parkman went missing. That was the same day that the Parkman family started to make worried calls to the police. The following day, John met with James Henry Blake, George's nephew, and a police officer outside of the college who asked if he had seen George Parkman. That afternoon, he was visited by George's brother, the Reverend Francis Parkman, and informed both he and the rest of the Parkman family that he met with the missing man after obtaining $483.64 to pay the latest installment of his debt. Upon receiving the money, George promised he would go straight to the city clerks to record the payment and clear his debt, and he left. Still certain something nefarious had happened to their loved one, the Parkman family offered a $3,000 reward for finding George alive and posted 28,000 copies of a wanted notice in hopes that someone saw something that could lead them to George's safe return. A little while later, the reward was issued a caveat, $1,000 for the return of George's body. It seems the family was losing hope as the city flew into a bit of a frenzy at the news of a potential crime. Speculation ran the gamut, with the media posting stories filled with both fact and fantasy, placing the blame on unknown men who possibly mugged the wealthy businessman or on the increasing Irish population that many seemed to take an issue with. The Boston Harbor was dragged looking for his body. Men were sent to neighboring towns and cities to look for any leads, and even abandoned buildings, ones he owned and ones he did not, were thoroughly searched for any signs of George Parkman. And, since the last place George was seen was the college, the newly formed professional police force went searching through the laboratories and dissecting vaults. But, like the other searches, came up completely empty-handed. Now, while everyone seemed to be looking for George Parkman, something suspicious was happening at the college that the police did not know about. Ephraim Littlefield had, a few days after George went missing, met up with John Webster outside of the school. John asked if he had seen George at the college the previous week, and Ephraim answered in the positive, saying he saw him that Friday at around 1.30 p.m. With that, John struck his cane on the ground and asked him again if he had seen George Parkman, asking more specifically if he had seen him in the building around 1.30 and if he had been in his lecture room. Ephraim answered no, and this seemed to calm the agitated man. John then repeated the story about paying off his debt and walked away having said more to Ephraim in the last few minutes than he had said to him in the years he had been working for the school. That's when Ephraim remembered that, about four days prior to George's trip to the school, John had asked him a number of questions about the dissecting vault. And then, his suspicion furthered when, after the police's search of the campus came up empty, John Webster showed up at his door with a turkey for his Thanksgiving dinner the first gift the man had ever given to the janitor. Needing more information, Ephraim became a bit of a detective and began watching John's every move. 
On November 28th, John came to the school early and, with Ephraim watching under the door, moved over to the furnace that was burning so hard that the wall on the other side was hot to the touch. After watching John exit the room, Ephraim went inside, having to use an open window as all the doors were bolted, and found that the kindling barrels were nearly empty. Concerned because he had just filled the barrels recently, Ephraim continued to look around and noticed some wet spots on the ground that, according to him, tasted like acid. Having seen enough, on Thanksgiving Day, November 29th, Ephraim borrowed a hatchet, drill, crowbar, and mortar chisel, and with his wife standing guard, started to chisel away at the wall under John Webster's private lab privy. He then followed the tunnel down into the vault, found the wall that had burned so hot the day before, and began to hack at the part where the privy emptied into a pit that he knew the police had not searched. One hour and two brick layers later, he had to take a break to go to a dance and left the remaining layers for the next day. On November 30th, he went back to work and, after a good bit of digging, was able to get to a point where he felt a draft that would snuff out his lantern anytime he tried to look inside. Reaching in further, he was hit with a wall of horrific smell. And once his eyes adjusted, he saw a dirt mound with what looked like a human pelvis on top, a dismembered thigh, and the lower half of a leg. At that moment, he knew exactly what happened to George Parkman. He then ran to the home of another professor who then contacted Marshall Tukey, the head of the Parkman investigation. By the time he had arrived, the campus was abuzz with the news of the shocking discovery, and everyone commented on how John Webster, eccentric as he was, seemed like the last person that would ever do something so horrific. After retrieving the dismembered body from its difficult hiding place, the coroner showed up and made his identification. Sure, he was the man responsible for the murder, Marshal Tukey dispatched an officer and two constables to go collect John Webster. They took him to jail and, when told he was under arrest for the murder based on the findings of Ephraim Littlefield, he yelled out, That villain, I am a ruined man, I am a ruined man, and turned right around and named the janitor, who did have access to the privy as well, as the murderer. He then fell silent and, later, put strychnine into his mouth and attempted suicide. Instead, it simply made him ill. Over the course of the next few weeks, the investigators found as much of George Webster's body as they could, most of which was heavily burned, and his wife had to identify her husband's remains simply by the hairiness of the dismembered pieces as well as the markings near his penis and lower back. When he was finally laid to rest, thousands lined the streets for George's funeral, and about 5,000 toured the crime scene during the course of the investigation and the trial, showing that this obsession with crime is anything but a new fad. On January 26, 1850, John Webster was indicted for the murder of George Parkman, and after two leading lawyers declined to defend him, John spent his time awaiting trial, writing out a detailed 194-page defense. According to the inquest jury, they believed that George, when coming to collect his debt, was assaulted by the lecturer with a knife, after which he beat the man to death, dismembered him, and used his knowledge of anatomy and science to try and get rid of the body. Working with two former Harvard graduates as his lawyers, one of which had no experience in criminal law, John did not discuss any legal strategy and simply handed over his papers, which contained the same story he told to police at the beginning of the investigation. There was no cross-examination of Ephraim Littlefield, 
no questions about his corpse stealing or his proximity to the lab, and neither attorney addressed John's claims that Ephraim had perjured himself. With that, the trial was scheduled to begin. It would go on to last 12 days and take place in front of 60,000 people from all over the world who came to witness the trial of the century. During the course of the trial, the jury was brought to the crime scene and led through the privy to see where George's body was stored, while the defense argued that the body was not that of George Parkman, and if it was, contested whether the knife wound the coroner found was actually what killed him, as there was no blood near the gash. On the third day of trial, Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr., the dean of the Harvard Medical College, took the stand and testified his belief that the body had to be dismembered by someone with knowledge of dissection and anatomy. While squashing the defense's claims that the knife wound could not have been the cause of death by saying that this particular location on the body, between the ribs, does not necessarily cause extreme blood loss. So it was not beyond the realm of possibility that no blood was found near the wound. That same day, George's dentist took the stand and swore that the jawbone found in the furnace, the one that contained some false teeth, belonged to that of his former patient, George Parkman, even showing the jury how it fit perfectly into the plaster impressions he had made of the businessman's jaw. Because this was the first time in the United States where dental evidence and scientific testimony were accepted during the murder trial, his testimony would leave a lasting impact on the criminal justice system. Next to take the stand was Ephraim Littlefield, who regaled the jury with his investigation skills, later replaced by his wife, who corroborated his claims, and the following day, the jury was inundated with facts and figures about John Webster's money issues. What the prosecution was claiming was the motive for his horrific crime. As witnesses continued to be called up by a prosecution team who seemed to argue circles around the defense— The case against John Webster, which goes beyond the short format of this show, seemed pretty cut and dry. After his attorneys gave their long, drawn-out closing arguments, John himself took the stand against their advice and, in a 15-minute speech, criticized his attorneys and presented his own version of evidence and dramatically called out the author of an anonymous letter that was sent to the police to reveal himself. Letters that the prosecution's expert had already claimed was a match to John's handwriting. No one revealed themselves. The judge in the case then made a historic statement that claimed the jury only needed to find beyond a reasonable doubt that the remains were that of George Parkman. If they did, then they should return a verdict of guilty. The vote was unanimous, and on March 30th at 10.45 p.m., John Webster was found guilty of murder. On April 1st, he was sentenced to death. Reactions to the verdict seemed to be sharply divided, with some believing without a shadow of a doubt that John Webster killed George Parkman, and others not completely sure the body even belonged to George. John was an intelligent, well-liked man who never gave anyone the impression that he was dangerous, even with his dire financial situation. After the trial, Ephraim Littlefield, who some suspected was the real killer, collected the $3,000 reward and was able to retire comfortably. This is, in today's money, almost $100,000. The following May, John's lawyer submitted a petition for a writ of error against Judge Shaw and his instructions to the jury. The hearing was held on June 12th and the writ was denied. 
John himself appealed to the governor at the time for a pardon, asserting his complete innocence, but he was denied a second time and his death warrant was signed. That same month, John Webster wrote a confession and admitted to killing George Parkman in self-defense. He said that George became aggressive over the loan, and in an act of passion and provocation, John killed his acquaintance to save his own life. He said that, after George spoke with him in a violent and menacing manner, he grabbed the first thing he could protect himself with, a stick of wood, and dealt a blow to the side of his head with, quote, all the force that passion could give. There wasn't a second blow, as the first was enough to end George's life. He also admitted to writing the anonymous letter. The confession did little to save him, and on August 30th, 1850, John Webster was publicly hanged for murder. In the aftermath of his death, centuries later, one author lamented the following. The Parkman murder case stands as a classic example of how a jury can reach a sound verdict despite an unfair trial. While another claimed the prosecution ignored evidence that did not fit the case, the judge showed bias against John Webster and the negative publicity, amongst other things, that tainted the entire case. In the end, we may never really know if the jury got it right, or if an innocent man died for a murder he may or may not have committed. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to what terrible thing happened on November 24th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.